We are looking this afternoon at Article 13 of the Belgic Confession on page 58, The Providence of God and His Government of All Things. We believe that the same good God, after He had created all things, did not forsake them or give them up to fortune or chance, but that He rules and governs them according to His holy will, so that nothing happens in this world without His appointment. Nevertheless, God neither is the author of nor can be charged with the sins which are committed. For his power and goodness are so great and incomprehensible that he orders and executes his work in the most excellent and just manner, even then when devils and wicked men act unjustly. And as to what he does surpassing human understanding, we will not curiously inquire into farther than our capacity will admit of but with the greatest humility and reverence adore the righteous judgments of God, which are hid from us, contenting ourselves that we are pupils of Christ, to learn only those things which he has revealed to us in his word without transgressing these limits. This doctrine affords us unspeakable consolation, since we are taught thereby that nothing can befall us by chance, but by the direction of our most gracious and heavenly Father, who watches over us with a paternal care, keeping all creatures so under his power that not a hair of our head, for they are all numbered, nor a sparrow can fall to the ground without the will of our Father. Matthew 10, verses 29 and 30. In whom we do entirely trust, being persuaded that he so restrains the devil and all our enemies that without his will and permission they cannot hurt us. Therefore we reject that damnable error of the Epicureans who say that God regards nothing but leaves all things to chance. Brothers and sisters, in our Lord Jesus Christ, you see that we have again here in this article of the Belgian Confession three paragraphs, the first of which deals with the definition of providence, and the second of which deals with the consolation or comfort of the doctrine of providence and the third of which deals with the error of the Epicureans. What I want to do this afternoon is begin with really the last paragraph, the error of the Epicureans and other errors about this doctrine of providence, and then uh, consider the two main paragraphs of the article. The error of the Epicureans Uh, is, of course, the error that God regards nothing but leaves all things to chance. The Epicureans were an ancient Greek philosophy. uh, That Epicureanism was an ancient Greek philosophy. uh, The best known, perhaps, today for what we call its hedonism, the pursuit of pleasure. But one of the... uh, ideas of Epicureanism was that all things happen in the universe by chance. They are mentioned, by the way, in the scriptures in Acts 17, verse 18, after Paul, um, or before Paul preached on Mars Hill, certain of the Greek philosophers heard of him and decided they would like to hear him. And in verse 18 we read, Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, What does this babbler want to say? And they then invited him to speak, and he spoke then from the Areopagus. 
But there are other errors also regarding the uh, doctrine of providence. The uh, confession, in fact, in the beginning of the article mentions fortune and chance. We believe that the same good God, after he had created all things, did not forsake them or give them up to fortune or chance. And we may define these things uh, somewhat differently. By fortune, we may uh, think of, uh, in connection with fortune, we may think of what we would probably more commonly call luck today. And luck plays, of course, a very large role in the minds of many people in our own time. They talk about good luck and bad luck. They talk about um, uh, even controlling their luck or, or at least taking advantage of their luck when their luck is in. They want to uh, do certain things at, that, at those times because that's more likely than they think to have a good outcome. They might play the lottery, for example, more frequently or uh, spend more money on the lottery when uh, they think their luck is in. Or they may go to a gambling place and they may um, uh, take advantage of the fact, they think anyway, that their luck is in and that they're more likely to have big winnings at the casino during such times. And they may even try to control their luck to a certain extent. This is where a lot of the superstitions of our times arise. We have general superstitions like uh, Good Fridays uh, or uh, Friday the 13th, for example, are, are supposedly uh, bad times for undertaking certain things. They may depend on the emotions of the stars. They may uh, talk about knocking on wood. And many people have private superstitions about various things. And these are all things, of course, by which they hope to control their luck to a certain extent. And, of course, the confession rejects this idea of fortune or luck altogether because all things are in the hands of God. But also chance. And, and when we talk about chance, we mean things that happen at random that uh, for uh, us may happen appear not to have any immediate causes or any kind of, of purpose to them. They're just events that happen. And we uh, look at these kinds of things, and from our perspective, of course, they, they do seem random. We can't explain them. We may not be able to trace them to any causes. We may not see any significant purpose or any purpose at all in these events, but we reject also that idea of chance because, again, God governs all things, and God has his purpose also in all, everything that happens. Since the time that the confession has been written, we've had the philosophy of deism, which uh, says that God created the world, but that he has since left the world to the operation of the natural laws in which he, in which he created into the world, and that he doesn't intervene, therefore, in the history of the world at all. Therefore, miracles are impossible, there is no such thing as a virgin birth. There is no such thing as resurrection of the dead. There are miracles are just not possible because God does not intervene 
in the history of the creation. And you have naturalism, uh, which denies the existence of God, and says, therefore, that uh, things happen either by chance or uh, by the operation of natural laws. And you have an extreme form, perhaps, of naturalism, which an extreme kind of determinism, which is, says that all things, even your emotions and your thoughts and your desires, are the product of chemical reactions, that everything is governed by natural law, and men do not even really have free wills. It may seem so to us as we live here in the world, but really our wills are subject also to chemical reactions within our bodies and uh, the natural laws that govern the creation or the world. So in all of, the, all of these are errors that we as Christians reject, and we say that God governs all things according to his eternal counsel and by his powerful hand. The confession puts it this way, he rules and governs them according to his holy will so that nothing happens in this world without his appointment. Nothing happens without his appointment. And the confession means that things great and small happen according to his appointment. Later on in the article, it uh, quotes Matthew 10, verses 29 and 30, about the hairs of our heads being numbered and no sparrow falling to the ground without the will of our Father in heaven. So even the little things, the things that uh, don't seem to us to matter at all, are things that are governed by the eternal counsel and providence of God. There's nothing that escapes from his uh, power, nothing that happens apart from his will. That's the basic idea of the doctrine of providence. And that's a very remarkable thing. When we look at everything that's happening in this creation, the blowing of the winds, the swirling of the dust, the ants on the sidewalk, the motion of the stars in the heavens, the rising and setting of the sun, the uh, waves of the sea, the, the creatures and all their different movements and the, in the operations of their internal lives and so on. All these things, we say, are under the sovereign direction of God, all determined in his eternal counsel and carried out by the power, ultimately, by the power of his hand. does not mean that we deny the, the uh, uh, force of, of secondary causes, of natural laws, and so on. These things all have their place in God's creation, but ultimately God stands over all of them, and God works through all of them, to accomplish his purposes. He is active in his creation. He is governing everything, absolutely everything, to accomplish his purposes according to his eternal counsel. In fact, you may well um, define providence as God working out his counsel in creation. He has determined all things from beforehand, and by his providence, 
he works out his determinations. Now, the, the confessions, you'll notice, of course, that the confession statement of the doctrine of providence only takes up four lines of that first paragraph, and all the rest of the paragraph, about two-thirds of it, are devoted to the subject of the relationship between God's providence and sin. So, immediately after defining providence as God governing all things according to his will so that nothing happens in this world without his appointment, the confession says, nevertheless, God neither is the author of nor can be charged with the sins which are committed. So it immediately addresses that. It doesn't say explicitly in those first four lines where it defines the providence of God that God governs sin in the same way that he governs all other things. But it is implied here in the statement when it says nothing happens in the world without his appointment, the confession means to include in that that no sin happens in this world without his appointment. And of course, it then uh, has to address the problem that that creates in our minds. Well, doesn't that make God the author of sin or responsible for sin in some way? And that's why it goes on then to say, nevertheless, God neither is the author of nor can be charged with the sins which are committed. Now that's um, a doctrine, again, which is not widely accepted, accepted today, I think even by Christians. Christians have a legitimate concern today, of course, with not making God the author of sin, not making God responsible for sin, but in uh, seeking to uh, escape the idea that God might be the author of sin or responsible for sin, they take refuge in the notion that God permits sin, that somehow his providence, his, the relation of his providence to sin is different from the relation of his providence to everything else. He works uh, actively in all other things, but in sin, he permits it. He's not actively executing his will in sin. And uh, I think there are really three problems with that kind of notion. The first problem with that kind of notion is, I think, that really it, it implies a kind of dualism. That if God permits sin, then that implies, doesn't it, that sin exists apart from his will. That it has his origina its origination somewhere outside altogether, outside of and apart from God. He can stop it if he wants to, and sometimes does stop it, and at other times he permits it, but its, its origin is beyond his power, beyond his, the exercise of his will. And in that way they hope to uh, explain that God is not responsible for sin in any way. But that means then that there exists some kind of power of evil apart from God. 
some kind of perhaps even eternal power of evil apart from God. A dualistic conception of the universe. That's uh, one problem with this. A second problem with this is that I don't think it really uh, solves the problem as Christians hope it would solve the problem. To say that God permits sin is supposed to relieve God of any accusation of being responsible for sin or the author of sin. But I think a couple of illustrations can help us see that there's a problem even with this idea of permission of sin. If you are walking down the street and you see a a big guy beating up on a child and it's in your power to stop the man from beating up on the child and you do nothing, that is you permit the evil act of this man to continue, you permit it, could we not say that you are in part responsible that some blame attaches to you because you have permitted this act to go on. It was in your power to do something about it, and you did nothing. But we can make it even more pointed, I think, if we uh, now imagine that the person walking down the street, that you walking down the street, are a policeman. And you see someone breaking and entering. And you decide not to do anything. You permit the breaking and entering to continue. Now, it was in your power to stop it, but it was actually more than in your power to stop it. It was your right and your duty to stop it. It was your obligation to do something about it. And you didn't. Then certainly blame attaches to you. You would probably be censured or disciplined for failure to perform your duties. And you rightly so. Well, God is the judge of heaven and earth. He has the power to stop sin. He has the authority and right to stop sin. And ultimately he will stop sin when he comes in judgment to destroy all the wicked and to establish perfect righteousness. Nevertheless, he does not do so immediately. He can stop sin. He has the right to stop sin. He will ultimately stop sin, but he permits sin to continue. Now, don't get me wrong here. I'm not saying that God is responsible for sin, that God is the author of sin. That would be blasphemy. What I'm trying to point out here is that this idea of permission does not really solve the problem of the relationship between God's providence and sin. It just isn't a solution to the problem. The problem still exists, maybe at a lower level, with not quite the same intensity, but nevertheless, the problem still exists. How can God permit sin when he could stop it and has the right to stop it and still remain 
the righteous and holy God, not responsible for it and not the author of it. So that's the second problem. Permission, the idea of permission doesn't really solve the problem. The third problem with this idea of permission is that it just does not adequately explain the scriptural data. And we read one of the passages tonight in Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28. I just pointed out to you one more time, there are many, many passages of this sort in the scriptures. We could multiply them into the dozens, I think. But in Acts uh, 17, verses 27 and 20, or I'm sorry, Acts 4, verses 27 and 28, we have the prayer of the church after the apostles Peter and John have been released by the leaders of the Jews. And they say, confess to God, for truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. That's about the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus by Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel and all their oppression of him. And it says they did what God's hand and purpose determined before to be done. This was in God's sovereign, under God's sovereign direction. And in Acts 2, a very similar passage, verse 23, him talking about Jesus being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God You have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. There you have the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man set side by side. Jesus was delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. They crucified him with their lawless hands. And we may refer also to the uh, instance in 1 Kings 22, where Ahab's prophets tell Ahab that he should go to fight against the Syrians at Ramoth-Gilead because God would surely give him the victory. And Micah, the true prophet of God, explains this prophecy of Ahab's prophets by saying, the Lord has put a lying spirit into the mouth of those prophets. The Lord has put a lying spirit into the mouth of those prophets. So, the scriptural data, and there are many, many more instances as well, the scriptural data indicates that simply talking about permission, God permitting sin, is not enough. God governs also in sin. Nothing happens without his appointment. And so we have this problem. problem of how can God sovereignly govern also in the matter of sin and not become the author of or responsible for sin in any way. And that's what this article deals with in the second part of that first paragraph. God neither is the author of 
nor can be charged with the sins which are committed. But notice what it then says. It doesn't really explain how that can be, but instead moves this whole question into the realm of incomprehensibility. God's power and goodness, and I think those are very important words here, his power and his goodness are so great and incomprehensible that he orders and executes his work in the most excellent and just manner, even then when devils and wicked men act unjustly. In other words, what the confession is saying is, in order to understand this problem of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, we would first have to understand God's power better than we do. We would have to understand more fully the operations of that power in this whole matter. We don't have an adequate understanding of God's power. And in the second place, we would have to have a better understanding of his goodness. We don't have a sufficient understanding of his goodness to be able to explain how he orders and executes his work in the most excellent and just manner, even then when devils and wicked men act unjustly. In other words, we cannot explain the holiness of his will. Line three of the article, we cannot explain the holiness of his will by our limited capacity and limited understanding. And so the confession uh, advises us and teaches us to take an approach of humility, basically, to this whole question as to what he does surpassing human understanding we will not curiously inquire into farther than our capacity will admit of. We will admit that we do not have the capacity to understand this question, and we will not pry into it beyond what the scriptures have revealed to us. It goes against our pride, it goes against our desire to know We've all felt the desire to solve this problem in some way. We've probably all made attempts to solve this problem in some way to the satisfaction of our own mind. But ultimately, I think every one of us has to come to the conclusion this one is beyond our capacity. And therefore, we will, with humility and reverence, adore the righteous judgments of God which are hid from us. This is the example of the Apostle Paul in Romans 9 to 11. Who are you, O man, to reply against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why have you made me thus? And then, O the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, and his ways past finding out. That doesn't mean that we draw back from studying the scriptures and learning what the scriptures have to say. And the confession also points that out. We adore the righteous judgments of God and we content ourselves that we are pupils of Christ to learn only those things which he has revealed to us in his word without transgressing these limits. We study the Word. We seek to know what the Word has to say. We accept 
the teaching of the Word. We confess that teaching of the Word, because thus we are pupils of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we do not go beyond. So that's the the first paragraph of the article. The second paragraph of the article deals with the consolation of this doctrine of providence. And what we have to do here, first of all, is understand that as we talk about providence in general, there is also a very personal side to the providence of God. We say that nothing happens apart from his appointment in the first paragraph. But in the second paragraph, then we recognize that nothing happens to us apart from his appointment. This becomes a very personal matter. Nothing happens to us apart from his appointment. No bad thing happens to us apart from his appointment. No suffering happens to us apart from his appointment. No good thing happens to us apart from his holy will. All the uh, circumstances of our lives, all the, the things that pile up on us over the course of our lives and, and trouble us throughout the course of our lives are ultimately due to the appointment of God's holy will. We, we never say of anything that happened by chance and mean that in a literal sense we may use that in a very modified sense that we can't explain why that happened or how that happened but we never mean when we say by chance well God missed that one and now he's going to have to do some repair work or something like that Nothing happens by chance. God doesn't miss anything. Everything that comes to us comes to us because of the powerful hand of God. Nor do we say that it's simply because of the laws of nature that things happen to us. That we are subject to the inviolable and pitiless laws of nature. So we're subject to the law of gravity and that's the ultimate explanation of the reason why we fall and hurt ourselves. Or we're subject to the laws of motion and therefore when we get in movement and we crash into something that it's simply the laws of motion that have governed that and that's the ultimate explanation. But we say that God governs All these things, the laws of nature and all the circumstances that surround the operation of these laws of nature, so that what happens to us happens according to his will, his holy will. Nor will we ever say that things happen to us by the sole agency of Satan or wicked men. We may be able to point to instances where wicked men have persecuted us. We may be pretty sure that Satan has been operating in some kind of trouble that we have experienced or some kind of temptation, but we do not attribute anything solely to the agency of these, um, these persons, Satan 
or wicked men. Ultimately, God governs Satan and wicked men and all that they do to us as well. This is what Joseph said in response to his brothers. You meant it for evil. They committed great sin in what they did to Joseph. God meant it, he said, for good. God was at work in your sin to accomplish his purposes. Or David, with regard to Shimei, as as David was fleeing from Absalom and leaving the city of Jerusalem, Shimei, of the house of Saul, ran alongside, cursing David and throwing dust and stones. And David's servants wanted to go over there and kill him for what he was doing. And David said to them, no, God said to Shimei, curse David. They looked to the providence of God, the hand of God, to explain as the ultimate explanation for all the events of their lives. God governs all. Well, what kind of comfort is that then? And the comfort is that this God, which is what the confession talks about, is our most gracious Heavenly Father, who watches over us with a paternal care, keeping all creatures so under his power that not a hair of our head can fall to the ground without his will. He's our Father. He loves us. He watches over us with paternal care and makes sure that nothing happens to us apart from his sovereign will. He is working out, this is our comfort, he is working out in our lives, in all the events of our lives, his purpose with regard to us. And we know that his purpose is good because he is our father and he loves us. I think we see no better example of that in the scriptures, people of God, than the example of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. As the Jews were stoning him to death, He looked up into heaven and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said that, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. There are three things I think we can point out about that statement of Stephen, very briefly. First of all, he sees Jesus at the right hand of God. That means he sees Jesus in his exalted position, in that position in which all power in heaven and on earth was given to him, and in which he, therefore, governs all things according to God's eternal will. And what Stephen was seeing and saying there then in his confession is, this is not happening to me apart from the will of my Lord. (coughs) The Lord was revealing to him that this stoning, this brutal act of the Jews against Stephen was according to the will of his gracious Lord and Savior. That's the first thing. The second thing, and that's very striking in the passage, is that he sees the Son of Man standing 
at the right hand of God. In every other place that we read about Jesus' position of power and authority at the right hand of God, we read of him sitting at the right hand of God. Here he stands. And I think what that communicated to Stephen was the Lord's watchful care of him during this stoning. The Lord was very alert, very watchful for the soul of Stephen, for the well-being of his servant Stephen. And the Lord was making sure that his will and only his will was executed with regard to Stephen. That no man went a hair's breadth beyond what the Lord had determined. They were all under his sovereign care, and he was standing there watchful for the soul of Stephen. Even that, I think we may say, is the explanation for Stephen's prayer that the Lord would not lay this sin to their charge. He watched over the soul of Stephen so that Stephen did not hate his enemies at that moment, but instead prayed for them. And finally, I think that we see there the Son of Man standing because he is prepared to receive Stephen's spirit. In answer to Stephen's prayer, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He stands to honor him. As he appears just a few minutes later in his presence. That's the watchful care of our Father in heaven that we see, we must see by faith in all his works of providence. The Lord Jesus, watching over us, working out his will and his purpose of salvation for us, making all things work together for our good. Therefore, we have unspeakable consolation. Nothing happens by chance. It is all from the hand of our gracious Heavenly Father. And therefore we trust in Him, in whom we do entirely trust, being persuaded that He so restrains the devil and all our enemies that without His will and permission they cannot hurt us. By way of conclusion, then, just a couple of things. First of all, I want to go back for a moment to Article 12, and the first paragraph of that article, and the statement about providence that we noted there at the end of that first paragraph that he also still upholds and governs them, that is, all creatures, by his eternal providence and infinite power, then notice the purpose for the service of mankind to the end that man may serve his God. So God's providence has, has so governs things that all creatures 
serve us. And so that in this service of all creatures to us, we may serve God. He so governs our lives then, by his eternal counsel and providence, that we may do his will here in the world, and that we may do the work that he's given us to do. That's how specific it becomes. He's given you a specific kind of work to do, a specific place in the creation, and he governs all creatures by his providence so that you can do it. He provides you your daily food. He provides you the contacts with people that you need in your life. He, and it, goes, it ripples outward. More and more distance. All things work together for the good of those who love God who are the called according to his purpose so that they may serve their God. The results then of this doctrine of providence should be that we glorify God. The greatness of the power and the wisdom of God displayed in his works of providence. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. That we also humbly submit to him when we do not understand his ways or when we find his ways unpleasant for ourselves. We recognize the limits of our understanding, the limits of our wisdom, the limits of our knowledge, and we say our Heavenly Father knows what He is doing. He cares for us. He is working out our salvation. He will not fail us. I can be confident that He will care for me. And we take comfort then that He is our Father in Christ Jesus, His Son. The Catechism in Lord's Day 10 has a beautiful statement about the providence of God. Questions and answers 27 and 28 on page 24. What do you understand by the providence of God, the almighty, everywhere, present power of God, whereby, as it were, by His hand, He still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures, and so governs them that herbs and grass rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty. Indeed, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. This doctrine is, by the way, of terror to the wicked, because they know then that they are in the hands of a God who is not fatherly disposed towards them. But to us it's a great comfort. All things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. What does it profit us to know that God created and by his providence upholds all things? That we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and for what is future have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from his love, since all creatures are so in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. May God bless us with his word.